So today I have a guest, a very special guest, Dr. Mandana Arbab. Dr. Mandana Arbab is the Laudish Family Assistant Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School and faculty member of the Rosamond Stone Zender Translational Neuroscience Center at Boston Children's Hospital. She received her PhD in regenerative medicine at the Hubricht Institute in the Netherlands and completed her postdoctoral fellowship at the Broad Institute with Professor David Liu, where she developed high-throughput CRISPR assays to characterize genome editing tools in mammalian cells and predict genome editing outcomes. She has applied this insights to treat genetic neurological disorders with genome editing therapeutics in cells and in mice. In 2021, Manda was awarded a Pathway to Independence Award from the NIH National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. And recently, she's been working on some very exciting projects with base editing, developing and publishing in science in this year, base editing rescue of spinomuscular atrophy in cells and in mice publication. Manda, it is a pleasure to have you here with me today. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so I would like to jump in and to speak a little bit more about the gene editing approaches to spinal muscular atrophy, which of course is your expertise. Let me ask you just to describe the disease. How does it manifest? How does it make sense, again, to target it with gene editing and gene therapy approaches overall? Uh, yeah, so spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA, is a degenerative motor neuron disease, um, which is caused by loss of motor neurons. Uh, and these are nerve cells that are located in the spinal cord, um, and they make contact with skeletal muscle to initiate contraction. Um, and in SMA patients, these neurons are lost, ultimately leading to paralysis, um, and typically resulting in fatality due to respiratory distress uh, in patients if left untreated. And the it is actually the most common genetic cause uh, of infant death worldwide, and most patients, type 1 patients, will uh, develop symptoms between two weeks to six months after birth, and again, if untreated, will unfortunately succumb to that uh, before about 18 months to two years. And this disease is, it's, the mechanism of it is actually still quite poorly understood, but the genetics of it are, are very well known, and it all revolves around uh, these genes called SMN genes, which is survival motor neuron, uh, is the name of the gene. And this uh, uh, gene, this protein, is actually essential for all cells, um, but in SMA patients, they suffer from SMN insufficiency, and it's motor neurons specifically that are, are most sensitive to this insufficiency and results um, in degeneration of those cells. And what is very uh, unique about SMA from a genetics perspective when it comes to gene editing is that the SMN1 gene um, is lost in these patients, and when I say lost in this case, it's usually completely deleted from the genome, but SMN patients will always retain um, essentially a backup gene, so to speak, uh, SMN2, which is an almost identical copy, but it has one mutation relative to the good gene, SMN1, um, which is a C to T uh, nucleotide change. 
And what's great about that from a genome editing perspective is that means that all patients could also be treated if you can just alter this one nucleotide. So when a lot of even monogenic disorders, you're often grappling with the fact that there are many different sorts of mutations. And so any one genome editing strategy that you would develop might only work for a subset of patients. Whereas here, um, if we could get an effective genome editing therapeutic to market at this target, um, you now have something that is amenable for all patients of this disease. That is quite incredible. And of course, we know by now there are at least two therapeutics that have been approved on the market, but it has been a long way history towards developing them. Could you speak a little bit about how maybe they were conceptualized, why it made sense in the beginning to target it that way, why, well, you know, because the tools were available probably and because some of the research was done before in the same fashion, but now with the more novel tools that are cleaner and more precise, which of course is something that you will speak about in much more detail and it's very exciting, there are just a much cleaner way to target the same diseases that we targeted previously with AAVs, adenosine viral vectors, or the antisense oligonucleotides. So could you please speak to that? Sure. Um, yeah, so there's actually, in fact, even three drugs on the market for mm. it now that all act at the genetic level, so to speak. Um, the very first drug on the market for this came out, I believe, in 2017. Uh, it's called Spinraza, or Nusinersin, and this is an antisense oligonucleotide. Um, and uh, this drug, as well as the most recently approved drug, Aristoplam or Avrisd, are uh, splicing enhancers. So what I mentioned pre previously about the one nucleotide change uh, that differentiates SMN2, the you know, insufficient gene to SMN1, which is the good gene, um, is that uh, they cause misplicing of exon 7. And exon 7 is the last exon normally of this uh, gene. And there are very many negative regulators of splicing uh, in that region that cause this skipping of this exon. And both the ASO drug and the small molecule, uh, nusinersin um, and erisidoplam, modify that and facilitate uh, splicing inclusion of exon 7 again um, to basically overcome the limitation that SMN2 genes have uh, to upregulate full-length SMN protein like SMN1 would, would produce um, from that gene. And they don't do this uh, entirely to the same efficiency as SMN1 genes would. So we know that in SMA patients in the spinal cord, SMN protein is reduced by about six-fold relative to uh, normal wild-type unaffected people. Um, and these drugs typically will uh, upregulate SMN expression by about one and a half to twofold in the spinal cord. But this is clearly good enough to, you know, there are many people who are now alive uh, and being mm -hmm. treated very functionally by these drugs. Um, but there's a bit of a, a shortcoming there where, you know, there, there's potentially room for improvement with uh, a new drug. And then as you alluded to, there's also an AV gene therapy uh, called Zolgensma um, that is available for this disease, which is a self-complementary AV system that simply has a constitutive pr promoter over expressing SMN in whatever tissues are uh, transduced by this drug. Again, also upregulating SMN levels in spinal cord by about one and a half to twofold and, uh, and having quite good outcomes. So that's fantastic, but let's speak a little bit more to the limitations of those approaches, kind of like priming our conversation about the base editors and even cleaner approaches. So with the ASOs, what are the limitations perhaps in the delivery mechanism or the, again, the way in which the patients are affected by having to re-deliver the ASOs, of course? Uh, and what are some of the limitations of the systemic delivery of the AV9 gene therapy, like in Zolgensma? 
Yeah, so the the ASO drug has a, a pretty long half-life of about three to four months, but the delivery is intrathecal. And so patients have to undergo these, um, you know, somewhat invasive and, you know, technically uh, require some expertise <laughs> to perform um, a couple times a year for presumably their entire lives uh, if they were, were only to stay on this drug. And so that's a bit of a limitation for patients, obviously. It doesn't allow for uh, the total freedom, um, you know, that we all enjoy. And then the small molecule that's on the market um, does uh, solve some of those issues. It needs to be taken daily, but it's orally available. Um, that one is has been on the market most recently, um, so there isn't as much long-term efficacy data, but it does seem to be doing quite well, but still does need to be taken over and over again. Zolgensma, on the other hand, uh, the AV drug may be a permanent treatment. Um, this is something that we will have to see over time uh, whether or not it does really give sustained expression. To a certain degree, it may well, uh, because our target tissue here is a neuron, which does not divide, so the um, the genome, uh, AV genome, could stay present long enough. But there are also um, some thoughts that it might silence over time. It is a viral genome, after all, and our cells kind of are resistant to that to a certain degree. Um, and it is becoming a little apparent now in in patients um, that doctors are treating, uh, that patients who are treated with combinations of these therapies, so for example, patients who had received Zolgensma already and are also being given Spinraza on top of that, actually appear to have better outcomes than those who are treated with these drugs alone. Um, that indicates already that there is a bit of a gap in the level of rescue that any one of these drugs um, alone can achieve uh, in patients. And part of that may well be due to the fact that none of them are really rescuing native levels of expression or allowing for endogenous uh, levels of regulation of SMN expression to the degree that it probably should occur. And this is these are all areas, I think, that a genome editing approach, in particular a base editing approach to make this very precise change to convert these uh, insufficient SMN2 genes into these good SMN1 genes, um, could really come through to, to provide more of a benefit where you could have a one and done therapy, so you don't need to have continuous administration for your whole life, um, but also um, recapitulating native expression levels and maintaining endogenous regulation of gene expression. So that's wonderful. So this is a great segue to speak about the base editing approaches. So tell us a little bit more about how was it conceptualized, how was the mutation targeted, and how did you think about the delivery, kind of like the strategy with this gene editing approach, also thinking maybe long-term, of course, taking it from mice to the clinic and to FDA approval? So the the target that we wanted to go after, which is the one that we ultimately succeeded in and continued with our mouse studies, was kind of like the, yeah, the, the perfect one that we had always wanted to, which is to change this one C to T change that differentiates SMN2 from SMN1 genes, you know, back again. Um, for a very long time, we weren't able to do that. The right tools didn't exist for the job. There were many other strategies actually that we pursued um, that were also successful at upregulating SMN expression. And all of this rested very heavily on this beautiful, massive body of data that existed from you know prior research. A lot of it was actually uh, generated in, in the process of, of finding the ASO therapeutic that's currently on the market um, that identified all these other negative regulators of gene expression that you know we found genome editing ways to modify either using u- nuclease 
spaces or base editing strategies. Um, but in the end, we found magic base editing strategy that really was very efficient at converting um, the one nucleotide that we were after. It's using um, an enzyme, uh, an adenine base editor enzyme, AB8E, um, that was also uh, developed in David Liu's lab, where I did my postdoc. And we validated, uh, we basically screened all of these strategies in a cell culture model, which were mouse CS cells that were derived from the Elsimen Delta 7 mouse. And this mouse um, has been instrumental both to our work um, to study this disease, but actually to the development of, I believe, all of the currently FDA-approved drugs for SMA. It is a mouse model that is pretty good at recapitulating the phenotypes that occur in, in humans. And uh, most importantly, for a genome editing approach like what we're after, uh, is the fact that it can contains the full-length human SMN2 gene. And that is, you know, incredibly powerful if you're trying to develop a drug to treat a human disease uh, to also be able to have that human gene in the mouse model. And so we had basically also because of the other drugs that had been developed a pretty clear path with, you know, there was a lot of data on endpoints and expected phenotypes uh, that we could compare to, and a lot of prior data on also delivery modalities, for example, um, for Zilgensma, they use AV9, so we already knew that this is a delivery modality that will target the right tissues, can do so in the correct time frame, and even works in people. Um, so we really were able to stand on the shoulders of <laughs> those who came before us and use a lot of uh, that information to our advantage. So that makes perfect sense. So you had, again, an incredible body of data and experience to come up with this strategy, with this approach. But let's, for our listeners, let me just, I guess, explain a little bit of the differences, again, with some of the AV9 approaches of delivering genes, such as in Zolgensma, where, again, the virus is having a load, it's delivering the whole gene, right, into the tissue, spreading it throughout the intravenous delivery into all of the cells, but the virus is very specifically infecting the neurons um, and the spinal cord neurons, motor neurons, in order to express the gene that is missing. So this is one type of delivery in, in which the DNA then exists in the shape and the form of the episome, so it sits next to the DNA, does not integrate into the human DNA in the nucleus, but it sits kind of like a circle right next to it, and it is expressed continuously from it, versus the strategy with the CRISPR gene editing approach, where we go in into the gene that's already there in the nucleus of the cell, and in a very clean manner with base editing, we're swapping one letter into another, right? So let's talk a little bit more about this. And I know you already mentioned the epigenetic silencing that happens uh, potentially with... May happen, uh, yeah. May happen, <laughs> yes. We don't know if it happens. May happen with, uh, again, the AV9 uh, ways of delivery of the uh, gene product. So what about the gene editing, is there any reason to believe that somehow modifying the native DNA could lead to any epigenetic changes? It wouldn't be inconceivable to think so, uh, but from all of the information that we have to date on doing genome editing at these sorts of loci, um, that doesn't happen. That, you know, you certainly could implement uh, CRISPR genome editing as a modality to make a change that potentially would you know, actively, intentionally alter um, an epigenetic state. But 
the presence of CRISPR itself and making a genome edit somewhere does not appear to inherently um, carry that as a particular risk. An important point to CRISPR genome editing is the fact that with whichever modality you, you are doing CRISPR genome editing, uh, typically you end up altering your target site. So you load your CRISPR system with a guide RNA that's specific for a particular genomic locus, and then once there, it makes an edit. By doing so, typically it also changes that target site such that it no longer actually recognizes that target site the way that it did before. So mm -hmm. the CRISPR itself acts as a one and done at the on-target locus effectively anyway. So it also doesn't necessarily linger um, in that same position for an extended period of time uh, to our understanding. Um, so it, that would also make it less likely for this sort of uh, phenotype to occur. And then just out of curiosity, uh, so when you deliver CRISPR, so actually the Cas9, let's explain this a little bit more, again, for a more general audience, the Cas9 comes inside of the AV9 vector, and it's actually split in half because it couldn't fit into one vector, right? So then does Cas9, is Cas9 being constantly expressed in those cells that have already been, again, modified and targeted? Does it happen all the way throughout the life? Will there ever be immunity that is developing towards, again, this Cas9 constituent expression? Yeah, this very much depends on the deliver, delivery modality that you choose. So there are, um, for different applications of CRISPR that people are pursuing for the clinic, there are different answers to that question. So there are um, approaches that use, for example, RMP delivery, uh, which means that you deliver just the protein, which degrades pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. There's mRNA delivery, which has a little bit longer sustained expression. And then AV delivery, which is what we're using, um, would indeed, as you're suggesting, result in long-term expression um, of this transgene, of this CRISPR system, which arguably is something that is not so desirable. And that mm -hmm. definitely is something that um, is actively being worked on, is can we build into our AV delivery systems also a mechanism where you don't uh, have constitutive expression of these genome editing tools for your whole life? Because, um, you know, there may be silencing, as you said, from uh, the AV genomes um, over time, but we don't know that for a fact, and we don't know that it is complete. Um, and ultimately, the whole idea of these therapies is that they can be one and done, so they should go away. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no reason for them to stick around any longer. So at present, the system that we have used for our strategy for SMA um, did not have any of these regulatory systems built in that stop expression, um, but hopefully uh, by the time we get to the clinic, uh, we and other people who are all actively working on this topic uh, would find also a way to limit temporally the expression of these genome editing tools. So that's a great point. Of course, up to up till now, the gene therapies are known to be those irreversible treatments, but there's some work being done to make them potentially either reversible in some shape or form, or tell us a little bit about what's been new or what's been in the works in that field. So for genome editing, the whole idea there is that uh, really you don't want to, it to be reversible. You wouldn't do genome editing if you don't want it to be reversible. You want to take something that you know is like a real problem um, and have a permanent fix for it. But uh, there are also even CRISPR-based um, approaches that are being pursued for gene-based therapies that are RNA targeting, for example. And these might also only have a transient effect um, and might be, be able to regulate them differently. Yes, that, that makes perfect sense. And of course, 
we want to correct the gene once uh, and never come to it, come back to it again, and want to correct the clinical phenotype. Uh, but if we speak about the potential off-target effects and are not known yet, right, or long-term effects, so this is kind of, I think, where the field is thinking to potentially make it reversible to some, in some way to know how we can kind of like take it back or edit it again in a way that it wouldn't have the off-targets. Potentially. I, I think trying to pursue off-targets by reversing them again might be a complicated <laughs> situation <laughs> because you don't know how many you have. I think for the most part, the best strategy is to try to, you know, go with approaches that seem to have very limited, if if any, below detection off-target effects in the first place. Um, and then again, trying to limit temporally the expression of these genome editing tools in the first place, because that would be the most uh, significant way that you could prevent off-targets from happening, is to only have a short burst of them being present in the first place. Hopefully, they would predominantly just edit the on-target and have very little effect on potential off-targets, um, and then have them go away. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So tell us a little bit more about the again, exciting part of the mouse phenotype that you've published upon because it seemed to in very well matter to reverse the disease phenotype, again, the ability to improve locomotion in mice. And you can describe us just a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, we, as you mentioned, developed a split base editor system. So our base editor is too large to fit in a single AAV, but we split it into two different ones that uh, can come together if they co-transduce, if they, if they target the same cell, um, which they do quite efficiently. And so we gave this to these SMA mice um, when they were newborns uh, on day zero. Uh, so similar to uh, human patients where typically um, the disease onsets at about two weeks to six months uh, after birth, in SMA mice, um, it on sets pretty immediately and they begin to um, have notable phenotypes at about five days after birth. And so you really want to be treating them as early as you can to correct um, SMN expressions before those motor neurons are irreversibly lost. Um, so we treat them on P0 and then we looked at a number of different outcomes in these mice. So typically their median survival if untreated is about 17 days as it was in our hands. Um, and by around P7, uh, already you can start doing certain motor assays like writing reflex assays to see what their motor development is like, um, as well as doing electrophysiological measurements of the motor neuron function. And we saw improvements in these sorts of assays as well after treatment, as well as a 33% extension in life expectancy, both uh, an experiment done in our facility as well as uh, another facility uh, with the group of Arthur Burgesson over in Ohio, um, where they their had slightly, you know, different birth weight, slightly different median survival, but again, a 33% increase in survival. Um, so that was really exciting uh, to see that, you know, reproducible benefit to those animals. That's fantastic, and congratulations, incredible results. Um, I have another question. So if I'm not mistaken, this was intrathecal delivery, right? So the AV9 carrying the Cas9 base editors have been delivered into the spinal cord and then dis distributed towards the motor neurons. Can you speak a little bit about the biodistribution, what you have seen, and how would you see this being translated into human? Would Again, would you target a spinal cord as well in the human? Or um, would it be just one injection? Or does it need to be distributed in any way to make sure that the neurons are targeted? and that it actually travels towards, again, the necessary, uh, the nucleus of the cell where it needs to work. 
So, so yes, when we did uh, the treatment in mice, um, we did ICV injection. So it's not quite intrathecal. Intrathecal would be very difficult to do in a very, mm. very small newborn. Um, but it's basically doing it uh, in the cerebral ventricles, which then allows the AV to travel through to the spinal cord um, and target the cells there. Uh, the biodistribution uh, throughout the CNS has also been extremely well described already for Zilgensma, which is the AV gene therapy that uses the same capsid AV, AV9. Uh, and we know that the transduction of motor neurons, in particular when you inject it in neonates, is very good. And that's great for us because that happens to be the, the target um, tissue in our case. It also does transduce other neurons, predominantly neurons, throughout the CNS, uh, in the cortex, and several other brain regions. Um, in our case, any neurons that it does, or any cells really anywhere that it does target, is only a benefit because the only thing we're doing is doing perfect correction of the insufficient gene into the good gene. Um, so everywhere you can do that is only going to be a positive. Um, but uh, what's also really valuable is we know, again, from the Zilgensma studies that there is, you know, a certain bar of the number of motor neurons that you want to target, which is at least over 20% uh, in this mouse model to have a significant impact in rescue. In our hands, we had over 40%, which is kind of the max that you also get with Zilgensma. So, um, again, we're, we're really able to, you know, leverage so much of this information that's already been gleaned from these other therapeutics to help our study out as well. Fantastic. So... Tell me a little bit more about what are the challenges of potentially taking the base editors and uh, these preclinical data into the clinic to have a clinical trial. Is there anything that you predict to be challenging in that regard? Um, yeah, I think a great number of things. So, you know, currently there uh, is no approved AV, you know, base editing therapeutic, in vivo therapeutic that's on the market. So if this were to be the first <laughs> today, then there would definitely be many hurdles that we'd have to undergo. There is a lot of work being done in this area, and so we may well not be the first, and, and hopefully we'd be able to learn more from other studies as well. Um, but I think the, the main focuses would be these off-targets, as we've been speaking about, having ways of uh, feeling very confident that we're not going to have a lot of off-targets and preferably finding ways to control and, and limit the number of off-targets that we have. Um, and then in addition to that, when we're thinking of clinical trials, um, you know, at this point, there are obviously three approved drugs on the market, and it's a very severe disease. You couldn't really conceive of doing a clinical trial for uh, a drug that you're starting today without having patients that are already receiving uh, the available standard of care. So we have obviously prior history, natural history data, where we know what the disease would be like in uh, patients that are untreated, but we can't really have an untreated population as control, nor would we want to. So one of the other great things that we explored in our study, which I think is actually a huge benefit in this matter is that we actually co-delivered our genome editing strategy along with one of the currently clinically approved drugs that's on the market, which is the ASO drug, Nusinersen or, or Spinraza. Um, and we demonstrated that, you know, not only is there no, as far as we could tell, negative interaction of the ASO drug, but there actually was a beneficial um, effect of co-delivering each of these drugs. So by providing mice with a small dose of Nusinersen alongside our genome editing strategy, we were able to have a very very first quick rescue by the ASO drug to sustain motor neurons and have them be in a really good healthy state for our genome editing strategy to take hold. And I think this is going to be really valuable because you can, you know, look forward to, in, to future clinical trials where you could then also have a control arm that our patients who are still receiving, you know, a, a highly effective standard of care, um, but then also have our uh, genome editing approach in there as well um, to hopefully allow these patients to come off of Spinraza <laughs> and uh, still have the sustained rescue from our drug. 
Absolutely, that's a very clever approach in terms of already thinking, again, what will make sense in the design of the clinical trial and what is the situations, the state of affairs we have today, right? So do you think it would be possible at all to combine it with the Zolgensma, with those patients being treated with Zolgensma? And I know you've shared earlier that there are some limitations as to how much of the viral genome can be input into a patient of a particular age, particular body size. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Um, if combining it with Zolgensma might, may well have a number of um, caveats to it. Um, so patients who have already received Zolgensma in the past may well not be eligible for another future AV9-based therapeutic because um, there would be prior immunity against AVs. So that is a potential limitation there um, unless we develop uh, other ways to, to overcome that or, or immune suppression approaches um, that, to, to my knowledge, don't aren't fully formalized yet as being effective. You could, I suppose, conceive of co-administering at the same time, but I just don't see why right. that would be a, a good way of doing it. I think you should, you know, if if a base editing approach is approved, I think that that would probably be the better way of going about it. Or if you then still want to do Zolgensma, then I think you should do that and, and probably mm -hmm. wouldn't want to do both at the same time because as you mentioned, there's only a maximum dose of AV that you can give to a person at the same time, so you'd effectively have to give half a dose of each uh, to make that work. <laughs> That's right. So you've alluded about the uh, immune response to, again, somebody who has already been dosed with a viral vector will have probably developing some immune response to that type of vector. I've also heard that there are some people who already have some level of immune response to Cas9. Do you know about that? Um, I'm not sure that I'm fully aware of that. It might, might may well be, <laughs> but I don't know about so, that. So yes, I've heard it in some of the recent talks that, um, again, some people had exposure, again, just from the bacterial exposure because uh -huh. it's a bacterial origin protein. So curious about that. It's nothing that I've come across in right. my earlier experience. Yeah, it could be a limitation. One of the, um, I guess, in a way, upsides of the fact that these drugs would be administered to very young patients is that they typically do not have this mm -hmm. prior immunity. And that's why SMA patients that are currently, for example, being treated with Zolgensma typically do not have prior immunity against AVs, whereas if you're treating older people, they have obviously experienced mm -hmm. and been exposed to more things in their life. So my hope would be that for at least the very young patients who would presumably get such a treatment, that that would hopefully not be a limitation. Mm -hmm. And so just to conclude our talk, I would like to ask you about, again, your future perspectives. When, where do you see the base editing going? Where do you see the clinical trial, again, for base editing in SMA happening? Where in the future do you see it? What are the prospects? Um, I would certainly hope uh, that we could get a safe and effective genome editing therapeutic on the market for SMA. It is, if all of these things, you know, work out as, as hoped for, SMA is an excellent candidate for a drug like this. It's, you know, a very clear monogenic disease where we know exactly a target that we could fix to get essentially perfect rescue, um, and that would provide a... Um, I think a, a great solution and overcome a lot of the limitations that exist to the already very effective drugs that are on the market today. In addition, I would hope that in doing so, we could learn a lot from the outcomes that these patients have and uh, use that to uh, accelerate the development of other genome editing therapeutics for the many other diseases that are out there. SMA is a rare disease, but it's actually not 
quite as rare as many of these other diseases that are out there. And it's more difficult, obviously, to do trials when you don't have um, as big of a patient population. So not only would developing a drug like this um, be a, a great benefit, I think, to SMA patients, but hopefully to um, the broader rare disease community and, and even beyond that. And my final question is, what excites you the most, again, about the field of the gene therapy, the field of CRISPR genome editing as of now? Uh, I, I'm just generally extremely excited about the field. I think that the speed of the technological development in recent years has been uh, incredible, and with the amount of you know brilliant people who are working on this still, I don't think it's necessarily uh, at any point of slowing down. And I think there is great promise in being able to do genome editing correction uh, for many uh, monogenic and hopefully even in the future polygenic diseases. So I, I believe that at some level, you know, this is the future of medicine, and so I hope that I'm, I'm excited to be part of a community that's contributing to trying to get us there, hopefully, uh, properly and safely in the coming years. Fantastic. Manda, it's been such a great pleasure to have you on Gene Therapy Insights podcast. Thank you so much. It's been invaluable to hear your opinions, to know your expertise, and to bring it to a very broad audience. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you. This was great. Thank you for tuning in to the GTI podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode and found new insights for yourself. If you like the episode, please press like, subscribe on your favorite platform. Your best support will be sharing this episode with colleagues and friends. For the future content... Comment below with suggestions of guests to interview and questions you would like to be answered.